Let's take our reading together from John chapter 20, uh, beginning from verse 19. John 20 and verse 19 is where we'll start our reading. Uh, the question today is to believe or not believe. That's the question. John 20 and verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, that means a twin. One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We arrive at these verses at the end of this reading that have been the focal point of John's uh, whole retelling of the life and the experiences of Jesus. He's been building to this crescendo in what he's been pulling together here for us. And it's so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you and I may have life in his name. We said it before that John has selected the various signs and events and focused in on particular characters to help us see that it's not easy to believe who Jesus really is. And it's not easy to believe in a way that means that we are truly born again. You know, for that to happen, it's a work of God. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus said to Nicodemus that you must be born again, and it was a work of the Spirit of God. But he said to Nicodemus that he had to believe. And that's a repeated refrain throughout John's Gospel, that God is the one who brings people into salvation. And at the same time, that people are responsible to believe. So here we're face to face again with the facts. And if God is working with us 
then we can be saved and enjoy salvation because God shows us the reality of these things. And by believing, we have life in his name, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John, in rising to this crescendo here, starts this section by saying on the evening of the first day of the week, this was the same day that he'd started with at the beginning of chapter 20, resurrection day morning. Here we are in the evening and it's a locked room and there are 10 of the apostles and maybe some other disciples that are there too. And it tells us that the room is locked because they're afraid. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're afraid that the same thing that they had seen happen to the Lord Jesus could happen to them because they were associated with him for the years of his ministry. So they're hiding together for fear of the Jews, it tells us. But this is resurrection day and it's been a troubling day for them. Mary Magdalene has told them that she has seen the Lord. The other women who also went to the tomb with Mary, of which if we do uh, the comparisons in the accounts would tell us that there's at least five others. They also have told the disciples that they've seen the Lord. We're also told that in Luke's account that there were two disciples who were walking out to the village of Emmaus and then they returned and they had seen the Lord. They reported it to the disciples, the apostles. And we also have Simon Peter at some point during resurrection day, the Lord has appeared to him. We're told in Luke 24, verse 34, and Paul also says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 and 5. So you have multiple eyewitness experiences of seeing the resurrected Lord. And the disciples have heard about it. But even with multiple eyewitness testimony, they're afraid and unbelieving. In Luke 24 and verse 11, it says that they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Of course it would. Somebody put to death by crucifixion, the one who himself had been able to raise other people to life, which nobody else could do, he had been taken out. So it was nonsense to believe that he was alive if he was the only one who was able to raise people to life. But then we're told in the second part of verse 19, it says that Jesus came and stood among them. The living Jesus, his desire was to be among his disciples and it's the same thing today. I just love the Lord's priority here. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ coming to be with <clears throat> his gathered disciples. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through to 18, when John is given a vision of, of heaven, he's also given a vision of the Lord Jesus. And it says that he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands that were representative of the churches of God. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, and he's described in glorious terms. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
knew the Lord. The risen Lord is, is among his disciples, gathered together in churches of God today. He's among us because that's where he wants to be, the living Lord among his people. And that is going to be the joy of redeemed humanity for eternity. Revelation 21 verse 3, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the reality for all believers for eternity. Now Jesus, he's there, appears in the middle of the room with them, among them, and he says, peace be with you. And you might have noticed as we were reading, he, he says that three times, and we're going to use the three uh, statements there as a structure for what we're going to say uh, today. Verse 19, he appears. They're frightened and fearful with the doors locked, and they're even more frightened with the appearing of the Lord. And he has to say to them, peace with you, peace be with you. It's to calm their fears that he is truly alive and he is not a ghost and the other accounts and the other gospel says that he he invited them to touch him not just to look but to touch and also he ate some fish to prove that he was not a ghost here he was the risen lord jesus in his glorified resurrection body as it's described by paul in philippians 3 21 the body that's fit for eternity, that's fit for the presence of God, a human body that is fit for that, that we also will share in. Here is the Lord Jesus, and he has just appeared. That body, able to do things that these bodies that we have now can't, able to just appear in a locked room. And then he pronounces peace on them, to calm them. And this is what the Lord Jesus wants for every person who hears this message. He wants them to have this peace, peace that comes from him. Paul picks up on this when he's writing. And in Romans chapter five, it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's those who believe in what Jesus achieved through his death and his resurrection, also in his life. There's a justification, a forgiveness of sins that comes to those who believe. It says we have peace with God, Paul says. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And Paul tells us in another place in the book of Colossians that he made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus comes to be among his followers. And when he's there and we know he's there, he pronounces peace. Peace be among you. Why? It's a reminder for us that sin has been atoned for. God has been satisfied with regards to our sin that must be judged by God. But yet he has brought that judgment on his son who willingly had sacrificed himself so that our sins could be taken and the consequences absorbed and removed by him. Sin atoned for, God satisfied, forgiveness offered to those who would repent of their sin and instead cling to Jesus as saviour. That's what brings peace. The tangible reality of the risen Jesus in his risen bodily form brings peace to those who will trust him and believe him. 
What's the outcome? Verse 20, it tells us that they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Suddenly, this is all starting to make some sense for them, but they've still got a journey to go on until it all clicks. But they're overjoyed. And then the second time we're told, the Lord says in verse 21, peace be with you. <clears throat> he had to repeat it to them. Why did he have to repeat peace again? Maybe because they were so overjoyed, they needed calming down again. And here was the Lord calming them because he was going to commission them. <clears throat> he had come to bring them peace. And he was coming to bring them peace as he would send them on a mission. He goes on and says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's in verse 21. Here we have Jesus clearly showing that he has the authority of God the Father and he has the authority to send. And as the Father had sent him, so he is sending the disciples and the apostles. And what is the similarity? Why did the Father send the Son? John tells us in his first letter, 4 verse 14, where he says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. The Savior sends his disciples that others would be saved through hearing the message through them. So that's the commission. <clears throat> Those of us who know our Bibles and have been Christians for a while will know that Matthew 28, we often refer to the last verses of that as the the Lord's commission to go into all the world. I wonder if here was the beginning of that commission to his followers. And he pronounces peace to them before he gives them the commission. You're going in just the same way as I have been sent. You are being sent so that salvation might come to others. And the commission is not without what's necessary. The commission comes with a promise of the Holy Spirit's power and an authority that's based on the word of God. You notice that it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think most likely this is a symbolic gesture <clears throat> that's anticipating the day of Pentecost that will happen 50 days later that we read about in Acts chapter two. The disciples weren't transformed in this moment. We see that in a few seconds whenever we realize that a week later they're still in a locked room with fear they're not transformed entirely they're still fearful they don't know exactly what this vocation this commission is all about and they're going to learn about that and john chapter 21 takes us into that a little bit more jesus promised though that their sending would be accompanied by power in luke's account Chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus promised, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, he said. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That was the promise of the Holy Spirit that he said would come. He, the third person of the Trinity, who would come to be with and in disciples, as we've learned from the Lord Jesus in his upper room ministry to his disciples. He was going to come to be their comforter, but also the power to give them the strength and the capacity to go as those sent by the Savior to go, that others might be saved. 
And this breathing, it made me think of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where God had formed man out of the dust of the ground. And it says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Here is the Lord, the creator of all things. As John told us in John chapter 1, in the opening verses, here he is breathing the newness of life and a newness of experience into his followers. And that newness of life is to be enjoyed by those that Jesus says will deny themselves, take up their own cross every day and follow him. That's what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And that brings us into the power that God gives us through his Holy Spirit to speak so that others might be saved. And then his disciples are given authority and that extends to us today as well. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. You know, this isn't granting that we have the authority to pronounce um, or to forgive someone for sins that have been committed against God. The religious leaders in Jesus's day knew that when they said no one can forgive sin but God alone. Of course, we're not to understand what Jesus said here in that way. Instead, we're to see that Jesus gives us the authority on the basis of what is in his teaching and what is contained in his word. That when someone declares, I see him for who he is as the savior. I know I'm a sinner and I repent and I turn from my sin and I I want to go after Jesus and cling to him for salvation. I will deny myself. I will take up the cross and I will follow him on the basis of that testimony that aligns with what is here in scripture. We can say to someone on the basis of that testimony, because it marries up with what is here and what Jesus said and what the apostles say, your sins are forgiven. If someone's testimony doesn't match that, then we have the authority to say your testimony doesn't match what is here in God's word. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he says that salvation comes about through repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts 10 verse 43, Peter says that forgiveness of sins is known and experienced through faith. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When someone declares that they have repented of their sin and their faith is in Jesus Christ, and they know that forgiveness has come because they have trusted in the one who has suffered and died for them, then we can say on the basis of what it says in God's word, your sins are forgiven. The third time Jesus says, peace be with you, in verse 26, is a week later. It's the same group again, probably, and they're still afraid. They're still having to work all of this out. A week has passed. Thomas wasn't there the first time, but he's here this time. And he's here because the disciples have said to him, verse 25, we have seen the Lord. But his response was that he needed to see and to touch the very thing that Jesus had invited the disciples the week before to do. He says, unless... Uh, I, I can do that. I won't believe it. That's implied in the Greek. I won't believe it. What's the it? He won't believe that the resurrection is true. And then we're told that in this locked room, 
again, the glorified Lord Jesus in his glorified body appears in the room. And again, the shock of it most likely means that he has to say the same words, peace be with you. The Lord comes to be among his people. And when he's there, he brings peace. And then he shifts his focus to Thomas. What grace, what patience, what love. Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. And then he says something that's strong in the Greek and not so strong in the NIV that I've been reading from verse 27. NIV says, stop doubting and believe, Jesus said to him. But actually the Greek means, don't be unbelieving, believe. Here was Jesus saying to Thomas, you come and touch, you have a good look. Stop unbelieving, believe. You know, to not believe, to be unbelieving is an active state of rejection of the Lord Jesus. To believe transforms everything. We see that in Thomas. He doesn't need to go and touch. He can see that the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. My Lord and my God. Absolutely convinced as to who Jesus is. After all that he has seen of Jesus over the few years of partnering with Jesus in ministry. Now he sees him, the crucified one who has returned from the dead. And here is a new way to understand who Messiah is. And Jesus says to Thomas something that gives uh, encouragement to us. He says, because you've seen me, Thomas, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I, I take it that the Lord was speaking about people over the course of that past week who had heard the witness testimony of those who had seen the Lord. But they hadn't seen him. But for them, it was enough to hear. And to believe. And here was Thomas who was holding out and holding out and holding out. Unless I see him and touch him, I won't believe it. And that extends to us today as well. This blessing that comes to those who haven't seen him physically, but yet are convinced by what is given to us. Here was the challenge to Thomas that comes to us. Now, Peter was writing his letter, uh, his first letter, and he wrote to believers and he reminded them in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We don't need to see physically the Lord Jesus to know the reality of what it is that God has done in him to be believers who then are filled with that same joy that is overflowing and inexpressible that these disciples experienced on that first resurrection day and then Thomas experiences a week later we haven't seen him but we love him because he loves us so John then comes to the end of his gospel, really, and verses 30 and 31 are, I think, really the conclusion of the, the laying out of all of the evidence so that you and I might believe. Chapter 21 is a different thing. 
almost as if we come back to earth with a bump as the disciples need to be reminded of the commission and instructed more about it so they might go out in power for him. There's restoration there. But here for us in the matter of belief, John has risen to the zenith of his writing here. We're not to be passive bystanders who say, yes, okay, I accept that that happened and leave it at that. That's a mental acceptance of something that does not transform anything because we're not yet aware of the reality of our sin that was the reason why the Savior went to the cross, that sinners might be rescued from under God's wrath when they would repent of that sin and put their faith in him as the resurrected Lord. His resurrection is key. It changes everything for us. So John concludes here and calls us, us, you and me, to a decision. Faith in Jesus, who was crucified but lives. The Messiah, who is the Son of God. Belief in him is the only thing that brings us into eternal life. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has answered all of the Old Testament promises that God had made. He is also the son of God. He's not just some great man. He is the son of God. That's where John ends up. And such a recognition demands everything of us, just like it did of Thomas. And he declared it. He says, my Lord and my God. You know, he was saying in that moment, you're the creator of everything. You've authority over every aspect of my life. I'm living for you now. And John says, verse 31, that's by believing you and me, we have life in his name. Are you believing? 